am excited to introduce our guest for today, friend of the show. He's a managing consultant for Krebs Stamos and a national, national security fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Most famously, however, he is best known for being one of the only two people on Twitter that P actually has push notifications for. Welcome back to the show, Matt Pines. Let's go, guys. It's a day, man. It's a day. How how are you doing? How's how's the news treated you today? Oh, good. Been busy. It's been in meetings most of the morning, so I'm not sure if there's anything I've been missing. Just another another day in crypto land. Just, yeah, no, you haven't. Just another just, day in a bear market. Yeah, right. I was just gonna I was gonna send the feds out to to grab Daquan from the live stream he's on. Yeah, well, let's. Let's start there because I, I caught this news while we were on the commercial break, but right now there is a live stream going on on a different channel. I don't want our viewers to go there, but Quan is live right now. And I'm just wondering how, why, like, is he just like, I, I don't know anymore, man. Like they, they've got to just be the greatest trolls out there, the way they behave. Between SBF, CZ, Doquan, Mashinsky, they are just trolls, right? I mean, these people aren't exactly the best risk managers, so doesn't surprise me. How many Man, of them that is, got degrees from Lehman Brothers? That is a very subtle, just like slap across the face. I love it. Just shots across the bow. I also feel like what's going on here is, do you remember when they turned on the Large Hadron Collider or when they were about to and everybody was like, guys, you can't do this. It's the largest particle accelerator that had ever been built at the time. And uh, they were like, maybe if you turn this on, it will tear a, a hole in the fabric of space-time and we will all get sucked into a, you know, Klein bottle and we'll cease to exist. Or maybe it'll do some terrible thing to the space-time continuum. I feel like when they flipped that switch, we thought nothing bad happened, but instead what happened is we flipped into the upside down and we're now, it's finally coming to roost. We're living through just the craziest possible timeline. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, as a, as a lapsed physicist, Physicist, uh, yeah. pretty party to, to that to that line of thing. In fact, Richard Feynman was a nuclear physicist on the Manhattan Project when he was he was relatively junior on that project. I think they tasked him with doing calculations to you know ensure that there wouldn't be like a catastrophic runaway chain reaction from the nuclear fire pole not in the atmosphere and incinerating all life on the planet. So you know he ran the numbers and you know thought that that was unlikely. So they went ahead with the trip test. You know, do it live. It all worked man. out. Alive. I mean, he was right. His his math checked out. Earth still exists. Humanity exactly. continued. Yeah. I do exactly. love that that they were like, humanity doesn't progress without you know taking some risks. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I also do just you know, you gave you a fantastic intro, but I also just want to say, you have an incredible. Uh, I always feel like I'm fanboying whenever you come on. It's true, I totally am. But you have an incredible breadth of knowledge. And I would encourage everyone to follow Matt on Twitter. He posts some of the highest, you know, it's a signal, highest detail and most informed, just like streams of consciousness of, uh, of anyone on Twitter. It's, it's quite impressive. Speaking of which, I want to ask, what has recently, what do you think people are sleeping on? You know, you, you post about so much. What is something that over the last, let's say on a, on a, you know, several week time scale the last several weeks what's the story that you feel like the average person or people in in bitcoin land are not paying enough attention to everybody's obsessed with ftx right now but what else is going on as far as you're concerned well there's a lot going on so for me it's it's odd because the world is both extremely complicated but also seems to be focused on some like critical single anchor points that if they flip in various directions like 
big things, sort of world, world historical things, right? So I think over the past few weeks, one of the things that I sort of was an anchor point that I think has been de-risk has been Ukraine. So I think we reached sort of maximum danger in sort of the Russia-Ukraine situation several weeks ago. And I think most of the news stories, if you sort of read between the lines, basically show that and sort of heading for sort of a rough stalemate and, you know, kind of jockeying for negotiations eventually. But there was a period, you know, about a month ago when there was a key risk of, of escalation, even the use of nuclear weapons. And that was freaking everyone out. That's, How do you think? Yeah. How do you think that at that point could, that could have played out? You know, you mentioned sort of nuclear weapons. What was the, the, the pivotal moment there? Or what were the two possible paths and then what changed in your mind? I mean, this is all looking through the mirror darkly. It was really over Kyrgyzstan and, and exactly how, how quickly Ukraine would, would be able to move in, whether, whether that position would collapse and overall kind of negotiations behind the scenes that it was reaching a crux point and Russia was, you know, threatening very aggressively, very overtly and covertly to use tactical nukes. And, you know, Liz Truss was personally checking the weather because she was worried about, you know, radioactivity. So absurdly going to England, which was never going to happen, especially with the low yield device, was ind indicative of the level of sort of the senior levels in, in the sort of cap and sort of Western capitals that sort of was filtering out into the mass media, but sort of through a filter. And only we sort of pick up on it, you know, after the fact. And I think now you're sort of seeing, you know, stories come out about pushing, you know, for Fox, you know, Zelensky being open negotiations, this sort of green deal that was, you know, fill apart and then, and then Turkey's no Russia got to get back in. Basically the writing is on the wall now that they're sort of reaching combination like, like, like peak risk, right? We're sort of over the hump of a peak risk, but now I think we're looking ahead and that's sort of more acute situations, right? I, so I think first and foremost, it's a step back, right? Everyone focuses on basically like what the fed does, because that effectively determines the, the macro environment for all assets. And I think the equivalent to that in the geopolitical scale is what President Xi does. And that's over a longer time scale. Now, I think, you know, there are, everyone has a take on the sort of Taiwan scenario. You can go down that, that rabbit hole. But from like a, a sense in which there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of events that occur. But for me, like the main strategic drivers of radical change, right, are going to come down to like a handful of key people making key decisions over the next few years. And one of those decisions is made by President Xi. And that's, that's for all the marbles, basically, right? So I look for, these are kind of the, the, the sort of tail events or sort of the extremely high consequence decisions that uh, you don't see play out day to day, right? They only occur. And then when they occur, there's a hard pivot in terms of the course of the best. And so, you know, you can sort of prognosticate and try to pr prepare and posture for the way things could break or pivot, depending on what those, those sort of forks in the road, which way you take. But that's usually where we're like a lot of, of, of effort and analysis is being is being taken across, you know, all the key actors in the global system is trying to now navigate through a world that has these like critical markers laid out in the next few years. And everyone is now having to recalibrate themselves and prepare and plan for, a, you know, a range of scenarios that they hadn't previously brought into sort of the aperture. So like, for example, like the stuff that I tried great in the Bitcoin and crypto world, like them, like these things seem seismic, like. Like the CZ SBS thing seems like, oh my God, like drama. I mean, it's in like, the scheme of things though. You got block hitting the windshield, right? Like, I don't really care. Tell me Love more it. about how the, our last 30 minutes of talking didn't matter. <laughs> it matters. I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly relevant, right? I think it's, 
you know, for market structure purposes, for consolidation, for, you know, balance of power, who's getting liquidated. Certainly there's telling story there, but from like a, from a perspective of truth that I try to take, like what really matters in a few years, you know. Well, let me, uh, on, on the heels of sort of this idea or this possibility, we obviously are in the middle of an election today both the House and Senate are pretty much up for grabs and there's conversations that it, they may flip, they may not. Can you walk us through, like, is there a scenario in your mind that is better served that the House and Senate be under this party's control in the event that something like this does come to fruition? Well, that's complicated. So point one on the, on the China specific front, which I think is probably the most important kind of geopolitical topic, you know, now and in, in, for the indefinite future. China is going to loom ever larger in sort of traditional foreign policy, geopolitical discourse, but it's going to become increasingly relevant to our political discourse, to our economic policy, trade policy. You know, we're going to increasingly base, you know, a more across the board economic warfare between the two countries that's going to have cascading impacts throughout different industries. Sort of starting in certain industries, but it's going to expand and eventually it's going to become, you know, somewhat of an all consuming competition, if not strategic rivalry. Countries. And so that's going to bring it from kind of this you know, relatively kind of domain specific thing. Like there's the trainer watcher community and people who follow the 20th party Congress and are, you know, really trying to understand everything to do with the COVID lockdown. But as we sort of, as it starts to become the defining strategic competition, it's going to affect, you know, global markets, going to most of our, like most industries, and it's going to affect global asset prices because, you know, how that relationship unfolds is going to cascade through everything. Politically, that means is that, you know, where there is consensus or where the sort of center of gravity for, for your U.S.-China relationship in, in D.C., how that moves has sort of dramatic effects. And I think it is one of the few issues in, on which sort of the median member of Congress has somewhat, you know, somewhat consensus on being conscious, uh, you know, hawkish against China. So just as Justine Pelosi went to visit Taiwan, that precipitated, you know, effectively a crisis. And a quick way to pump in NVIDIA's stock price. Sorry, yeah. it's it's very likely that Speaker McCarthy, assuming the Republicans take control, he will also be visiting and and will likely precipitate an even more sort of vocal reaction by the by the Chinese. So you just I just see this as a one way ratchet, where sort of regardless of who's you know, in power, it could be you know, and and if you look to where the most aggressive moves have been made on that front, there were executive actions. So there's a whole suite of executive orders that have already come out. The most recent one was the sort of the the set of, of measures taken against against China's ability to access certain types of semiconductor technology, which is a very aggressive, somewhat unprecedented to essentially try to hobble the Chinese ability to advance technology in that area. There's gonna be all, there's gonna be more coming on that front. It's gonna be outbound investment screening to limit the amount of investment of US capital into China. Uh, it's gonna be you know, additional controls like be placed on other technologies, artificial intelligence technologies, quantum information technologies. Energy biotechnologies. So there's a whole set of things that are, that are going to continue to come out of the plane. They're going to be executive orders, basically. Um, how does that? How does that actually work, though? And apologies for asking such a, a basic question, but like in in today's modern era, how can you effectively? How does one? How does one country effectively stymie the developments in another country in that way? How effective are those ty- types of strictures? So it gets quite technical. I'm bore the audience with like the 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 acronyms, but like this is a as old as. As old as there has been global trade, as long as we had like industrial societies, so if you go back to the, the the British and the German rivalry that led up to World War One, uh, 
you know, the British tried to do something similar to a hobble arising German industrial power. They tried to put on effectively sanctions. And that worked. That worked pretty well, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. Yeah, it worked out. I think actually it led to, you know, these are somewhat semi-industrialized countries. Half a million Germans died as a result. Holy shit. Like directly as a result of those blockades. I was kidding. Obviously, this led to World War II indirectly, but. It's been a lot since I read the, yeah, no, this is pre-war. Yes, in terms of, yeah, of course. like, food issues, medicine, disease, other sorts of, I mean, and that's a number I remember reading from an analysis a real while ago, so I could be wrong. But then it was a, it was a severe like economic competition and we all think that oh we just like they were like chit-chatting and then decided to like do what we're one like no there was like multiple years of like aggressive attempts to you know measure short of war you know mess with each other mess with each other's economies and that was done through several sorts of trade restrictions import restrictions you know their, their version of industrial espionage uh, etc during the cold war we set up these things called these COCOMs, these coordinating committees with our sort of Western allies to you know, restrict the Soviet bloc's ability to access our technologies. And so all the major sort of aligned Western nations participated in these coordinating committees to say, here's the things that we will not sell to a member of the Soviet bloc. We will have an, an inspection regime. We will have, you know, essentially a bilateral relationship you know, to kind of force these things. And they sort of, and they did this with like chip technology. Like chips have been military technology since the beginning. They were coming out of World War II, the first computers being used to, to, to you know, crack codes and, and was good, you know, create integrated circuits, you know, use them for guidance for ICBM. So like they've always been military technology. Actually recently have they become, you know, more consumer oriented in terms of the scale of their production. But fundamentally that, you know, we had this sort of these systems in place it become a lot more complicated to enforce in a globalized system. And this is where, you know, the, the more recent actions, I think, are really going to be kind of a test case for how effective it can be in the current situation. Because, for example, chips, and there's a whole separate conversation just to have about the chips thing. You know, we don't really make this, right? So we're not limiting our exports to China. We are trying to impose a global ban on China's ability to access third parties' technology because there's a critical intervening Part of the supply chain that comes to the U.S. So we have, you know, just like certain technologies for manufacturing and design, like critical inputs to someone else's production. And so we're basically saying, well, if you want us, you want access to this piece of the technology, like, the condition is that you don't sell the, the end product to China. There's a whole bunch of other enforcement regimes. It gets really complicated because a lot of our partner nations, Japan, South Korea, the Netherlands, that are critical members of the sort of the the chip that's sort of global industry, China's a big market for them. And China has positioned themselves as a key piece of that supply chain. And so you're asking folks like Samsung, who's a national champion of, of, of Singapore, I'm sorry, of, of South Korea, to, and I, I think South Korea is like 25% of their exports go to China. So it's like, it's a big deal for them to basically say like, we're going to take a hit because U.S. tells us to. So these measures that were just put out were I mean, just U.S. only. They were, they were unilateral measures. They were quite restricted across a whole set of domains. But really, they require our allies, Japan, South Korea, the Netherlands, to really come on board and haven't yet. And there's like a 12-month period that they sort of are hoping to kind of work this out, get them on board and do some inducements. But it's a very complicated negotiation. But this is the game that we're in now, is, is really trying to, you know, we went from, I think, strategic competition, which is, a, I would say, a word where describe it like you are trying to just beat the other guy, but you're not trying to knock the other guy down. You're just trying to outpace the develop. That's why I think where we were up until recently. Now we're in sort of strategic rivalry where 
you're willing to, you're trying to actively hurt the other guy, but you don't want to take measures that hurt you. And you have like, so oh, that's an interesting distinction. And then the next level up from here would be strategic enmity, E-N-M-I-T-Y, where you're willing to take a personal hit as long as it hurts the other guy more. And oh, that's fascinating. You get to sort of a negative sum, sort of spiral security dilemma. Like, that's usually where you start going towards war. Can you repeat those three, those three tiers one more time? Yeah, so strategic competition is sort of like, you just focus on your own benefit, you, like your own strengths, and you try to outpace the other guy. Strategic uh, rivalry is where you actively try to hobble the other guy and end run faster. And strategic identity is like, just tackle the other guy and know that you're going to take some hits, but like, you try to hit him worse and make sure that he, he, he loses more than you. But you're yeah. willing to net loss in that scenario just to stop the other guy from facing you. And that's, that's sort of a dynamic you see in a lot of historical episodes. We have rising powers, you know, trying to, you know, and their status quo sort of leadership. So, yeah. So all these things that I see, like with the global chessboard, sort of so, so quote but like are all in this larger context, which is sort of a, you know, and it's a relatively recent kind of phase shift in the global dynamic that was sort of I think being long planned by the Chinese, but we're sort of shifting gears. They have had a multi-decade strategy, and there's a great book by Kurt, a gentleman who's currently a national council staff kind of director who wrote this book before he went to the White House called the long game and he went through like you know archives um of chinese uh, materials to, like say like this has been their grand strategy like laid out in in hundreds of documents and it basically first thing to block block like a blocking strategy find your time hide your strength and just try and basically you know mitigate to a certain extent the hegemonic ability to coerce you but it's just a blocking strategy just to like you know protect yourself basically when you're not that strong then there's a building phase where now you've at least, you know, established, you know, domestic economic strength, start to build out some of your military for just protecting your own littorals. And then you want to build on it. You want to, you know, invest in more advanced capabilities, start to project some more strength in international forums. And that was kind of to the 2008, 2013 stage, building your capability, but still trying to like play nice on the global stage. And then I think they shifted in like 2016 with Trump's election, Brexit, and the trade wars to like an expansion more aggressive base where okay like pretty soon the hegemon's gonna wake up it's gonna wake up to us like it's not hard to hide these like capabilities you know that we're like aggressively investing in to push the u.s out of the western pacific and we should expect to carry action and we should just sort of let the maps sort of come down and that's that's the new phase and i think covid and the russia's russia's invasion you know i think cemented this new regime and then the white house is sort of reacting to it right these measures on ships and sort of the the talk about there being a more kind of bipartisan consensus on this U.S. China rivalry is now becoming explicit and much more sort of manifest. So I think this is just it's happened. It's been building for a while, but I think it's sort of recently in the past year or two has shifted a lot. Dang. And that's I think a lot. This is coming to like usually starts in like the intelligence circles, like people who study this, like just study China, then in the DoD world, and then sort of filters into the normal policymaking world, and eventually gets to like economic policymakers. And then once that happens, like once we start doing like, once we start doing blanket bans on entire industries, then like the CEOs of big companies start to sort of like pick their ears up and like, oh, this is a different world than we lived in for the past 20 years where China was our growth market. All of our strategies were for expansion and all of their personal careers were anchored in in a worldview that saw China as part of this integrated global market. They would move into that market aggressively. And maybe there would be like some nice story that you that they would tell themselves that the Chinese were happy for us to believe that this would allow them to liberalize and democratize. They got richer, et cetera, which is itself a very explicit 
information operation directed by the, the, the Ministry of State Security for decades through a number of different front groups. This is like a very calculated thing that they, that they planted in the minds of Westerners. That the Chinese government did or that our own government did? No, the Chinese government. So there's a great book called Spies and Lies, where a researcher goes through, you know, the MSS's sort of flow operations starting in the 80s when the MSS kind of really came on the map, which is their equivalent to the CIA. And like the United Front Work Department, a whole bunch of these like forums that were like the China Dialogue Forum or like the China Reform Commission. There's like sort of benign sounding things that a lot of our, you know, elites and foreign politicians and Westerners kind of you know, would like, oh yeah, well, I've got this guy who's like going to help me get meetings and like he's an academic, all in, all MSS on. But they were really successful at basically convincing, you know, like the, like the Hank Paulsons of the world, from Goldman Sachs and Treasury Department, really, that, you know, China was going to rise peacefully, it was going to integrate to the global system. And yeah, there had to be some accommodation and, you know, balancing power. But fundamentally, you know, they would reform and they would open up. Right? That was the, that was the line. And, and a lot of this, you know, corporate America and Western multinationals, yeah, that was a good story. But finally, it was like a market. And it was like, we need to dive into the market. Yeah. They developed their global operating model, the whole business plans around that. And now it's like COVID and then this. is like a one-two punch. And a lot of companies are trying to recalibrate their their overall strategy to a world where it's, that's not anymore. And that's, that has, once you want why that's not just the supply chains. It's also your creation, architecture, your, 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 your overall strategy. Where's the world going to grow? Was well, China? Now it's like, well, these are like icebergs. These are like you know, cruise ships. They'll just like turn on nine. But when they do, they don't take shit. Yeah. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is brought to you by CrowdHealth. With open enrollment upon us, what if you didn't have to pay healthcare premiums anymore? What if you can invest in Bitcoin instead? With CrowdHealth, you can choose your doctors, put aside money for your health expenses in your own account, and even hold a large part of it in Bitcoin. Pay one low monthly total to fund an account that is yours. If a large expense comes up, CrowdHealth will crowdfund the bill for you to pay quickly. Go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG and experience freedom from health insurance by utilizing Bitcoin. Right now, through the end of the year, you can get your first six months for just $99 per month. Don't get stuck in a bad insurance plan again. Instead, go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG to sign up. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, 
you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Q, I want to give you an opportunity to jump in. I, I, I have so many questions about that. Uh, like, uh, the only question I kind of wanted to chime in, because you kind of made mention to it, but I think I followed it correctly. I want to make sure that AI did and B, our audiences as well. You alluded to the fact that, you know, superpowers historically have tried to re- hold on to their power and influence around the world. This is, though, the first iteration for the United States. Would that be a correct assumption to draw that we have never sort of dictated foreign policy to then almost have it be ignored by our allies around the world? And what is yeah, this? The, that? Yeah, I mean, certainly the closest, I'd say, equivalent time period is the immediate post-war period. And actually, I think that's probably the most, if I didn't draw any analogy, again, there's no perfect historical analogy, but I'd say the closest historical analogy is the immediate post-war period. 40, 47 to like early 50s, where the Soviets were, you know, very aggressive and very successful power. Like they were consolidating the Iron Curtain across the Eurasian periphery. And the United States had just spent huge amounts of money <laughs> out of World War II. We had lots of debt. We had extremely high inflation, like 20% inflation in the late 40s. Yeah, we had these sort of double the recession. You look at like the Lynn Alden chart, you can see like very similar sort of period right now where. We had, you know, the spike of inflation, then it came back down, recession, another spike of inflation, back down. But they had guilt curve control, right? And there was the Treasury Fed Accord. But geopolitically, you know, Russia was a pure power. And they, you know, we were, you know, there was all sorts of memos in the DCFRS, like, how do we, like, this is a new world. Like, you know, the beginning of the Cold War, how do we, you know, fight this war? And, you know, Korean War was the first sort of entry into that. And we had Sputnik. And there was like a real sense that like, yeah, was it American a victory in that global competition was not was not inevitable. But eventually, we sort of yeah geared up, and the Soviet system couldn't keep pace. But in that, that that early period, it was not an obvious an obvious answer how how this competition, economic models, geopolitical blocks would unfold. But we never really faced a peer competitor with where their GDP was more than sixty percent of ours, even in the early Soviet era. And and China reached I think seventy five percent of our GDP. I think last year. And they passed the 60% threshold in 2014. And by purchasing power parity, they're, they're, way, they're way over in terms of that as, as a GDP measure. So this is a very, yeah, unprecedented geopolitical sort of state of affairs where you have peer competitor that is a serious competitor. You have folks make, you know, there's lots of weaknesses to China. You can talk about, right? Like their housing, $90 trillion of debt, demographic issues, the whole Peter Zihan thing, right? I think that is, that is I'm, I'm way less on the risks of China's rise. In fact, to make the argument that it's China's peaking power now-ish that makes the acute danger between the, uh, the competition, conflict between us actually higher, right? So if they were really assured of their inevitable rise to take the leadership of the globe, that U.S. was sort of inherently crippled, driven by political and economic decay, then there were really not much of an, an incentive for President Xi or any Chinese leader to you know, trigger a conflict, just sort of let it happen, just sort of you just glide to the top of the, of the mountain and let us sort of destroy ourselves. And, you know, you know eventually kind of the, the, the real risk, though, is that you know, China recognizes that because of these structural forces, that their peaking power relative to us is likely to happen now or the next few years. And so if they wait too long to sort of try to change the status quo. It might be too late. You know, we may eventually get our act to, uh, together. We may eventually get all, you know, allies in the region to sort of come on board with us, you know team China strategy, we may, you know, aggressively push a whole bunch of weapons into Taiwan and make it 
you know, change the balance of power for any military operation. We, we may get our shipbuilding capacity up by the 2030s. We may politically, you know, get somewhere, you know, as we sort of get millennials into, into power, into the uh, you know, positions of power. So, you know, and, and China's going to have this demographic cliff, right, in the next, starting now, but really in the, in the 2030s. So that to me is that a different narrative to put around why the risk is higher I wish is not because China is like inevitably going to take over and U.S. is inevitably going to be weak. It's actually, there's just sort of like two lines and like U.S. is kind of like relatively weak now compared to China's rising strength. China's rising strength relative to us catching up could close the gap by the end of the decade. That means this decade is kind of the, the crunch, the crunch time. Man, that's so interesting. So how do you think this, two specific questions. One, do you think that the U.S. will actually ban TikTok ever? TikTok, I thought they were going to say Bitcoin. We're going to go now, yeah. With, with P, you know that that's never off the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we can follow up with that one. TikTok is interesting. So actually, a colleague of mine, Cody Carey, who's a China specialist, he's written an op-ed um, about TikTok. And people miss misconstrue the risk from TikTok being like malware on your phone and trying to get the back door, you know, you know, spy on you. I mean, that's not really the risk. Like the real risk, yeah, I think from a strategic level is psychological. It's, it's, you know, what they call sort of political warfare, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and they have a very broad definition of kind of their approach to their influence operations, logical warfare. And they view these instruments as like tools to essentially like degrade our capacity as a society, right? Yeah. They, they see it not as like a specific cybersecurity in the, uh, instrument or a doorway into a certain network. They see it as a way to essentially wage cognitive warfare against the minds of the American people and principally our youth. And yeah, I think it's a strategic problem from that perspective. And yeah, I mean, banning it is, there's a whole legal question over what does that mean? Like, it just, like for me, like I need to see exactly the instrument of power and the justification being used to ban it. Because if there's an actually argument for why it's a high risk. That doesn't mean that you just like, wield executive power to ban a certain technology. I think we can all agree that we want there to be more checks and balances on- I need, uh, I need yes or no. The executive banning it. I don't think it's going to be banned. I think there'll be all sorts of measures done on the margin. There's hmm. things you can do, like future laws. We don't have a data. We don't have like data privacy or data rights laws in the United States at all. It's a whole different debate. But like, you know, once you apply the precedent to TikTok, you'd have to look at, okay, well, what's the- What's the rationale that would also apply to lots of other things, right? Yeah, like, you got some very uncomfortable questions. On all sorts of, you know, technology platforms. So is it okay if we're being manipulated by Facebook and Johnson & Johnson and, you know, every corporate, you know, you know, advertiser, that's fine. But when it's trying to doing it, it's like, we're going to be in it. Well, okay. Why don't, why isn't trying to just pay Johnson & Johnson? Or it's like, it's like, it's like, okay, it's just because it's a Chinese app. doesn't mean like there are other ways. Yeah, of course. U.S. And that's I mean, a whole where you draw the line, that's where I think I haven't seen like a real solid bright line. That once you establish that precedent, how are you going to apply it elsewhere? I think we need to draw a line somewhere and we need to Absolutely. be clear about the justification, but it wouldn't just be TikTok then. I mean, you have to be somebody to generalize on that. But I mean, most people would be. Right, but you should side. delete TikTok. You should delete Facebook. You should, you should do those things anyways. Like that's my first recommendation. I think they're- Twitter? They're not good. No, Twitter's great. Twitter's awesome. So do you think there, we, I've heard rumors that the way that TikTok is set up is if you are 
a Chinese citizen or if you are geolocated to China, you this get is presented. A true story. Do not say this is a real. Well, I, well, I want to hear. I want to hear Matt's opinion here. That basically, if you are in China, if you are a Chinese citizen, you see much more study. Stem, yeah, STEM yeah, exactly. Math tips, science yeah, tips, yeah, like engineering tips, actual, real, super valuable content. And if you are anywhere else, especially in the U.S., the claim is that you see just the absolute like garbage. Yeah, exactly. Just like distracting nonsense content. Do all, you have all the dance TikToks that you and I made last time we were together? Oh, of course. Right. So, look, look, th those were quality. And if you tell me otherwise, Q, I will fight you. No, I'm curious. So, is that true? Do you know? Yeah, no, I've, I've seen the same reporting. That's true. I think it's it's. It's two forces, though. Both there being, you know, the algorithmic firewall between the one that they developed for China and the one that developed for the United States. It's also, I think, reflective of our cultural sort of, yeah, you know, orientation, right? And I don't think it was like, you know, doing frivolous dances was just like a Chinese. It was like, like we just like doing dumb shit and like giggling and like we're part of our culture. Big consumerist, you know, in our culture, we just don't value these types of things. And so they're not going to go viral and the algorithm is going to, you know, reinforce those things over time. So I think it's also it's like, yeah, it's like you can paint it as though, you know, it's all a grand inflation by China. I think we should also look in the mirror. It's like, is our, was our culture all that healthy and like studious and, you know, focused on, you know, hard achievements before TikTok? <laughs> I'm hard pressed to think that like it was TikTok that turned us all into just, you know, attention deficit disorder, mindless consumers. Like I think, it's been on issues for many decades. What are you trying to say, Matt? What are you trying to say about American citizens and people? Well, so Why do you write Christmas? There's a great book that almost nobody reads because it's, yeah, a thousand pages long called The Jest by David Foster Wallace. And it's sort of a classic, sort of postmodern, ironic book. But in the conceit, the book is there's this videotape that, you know, when you watch it, it's so powerfully overwhelming, entertaining that you sit and watch it until you die of starvation, dehydration. And then this comes like a weapon that terrorist groups and nation states try to fight over to try to get this thing, get the entertainment, because it, you know, essentially holds so much power. And yeah, you know, this was written like, like the 90s. I think it was, I think, present to see how our, our modern era be. But then just, you know, those were trends that were pointed out, you know, the early, early stages of the internet just metastasized. The, the reality is so much more insidious. It's that it's, there's not a single video, it's, all of the videos and it's, we do it to ourselves. Yeah. I think a, a lot of this, I mean, you look back through the cold war, right? A lot of the you know, analysis done on disinformation, psychological operations, and sort of the cold war position, you know, it's always usually, you know, there's certain elements of disinformation. that are all about like coming up with something, getting people to believe the state. That's actually hard to do. And it's usually done only like on the margin. The easier thing to do is take things that are true. People that are already, you know, tend to believe and just reinforce them to the extreme block out, you know, their attention to other things and focus so much emotion and so much attention on something that's true, but it becomes a distraction or, or it sort of it exaggerates, you know, it's relative importance. And that's much easier to do because people are much more inclined to believe those things because they're, they're obviously true. But, um, mm. and, and that's like how you, you know, try to fight these sort of, you know, society-wide cultural terms, which have now been reinforced because we're now yeah, so flip to the algorithms. But yeah, that is a, that's a very spooky problem, right? For open society, right? China has solved this problem, but it's not having an open society. I'm just saying, we control the algorithms. We'll control the, f and it will be, you know, duty to your country, respect to your elders, do your homework, don't play video games, 
you know, like the perfect boomer, you know, like oh algorithm, right? Because it's all boomers that are running these, running these systems. And like people in China, right, don't have much of an like alternative view, right? It's just, okay. We actually give you some of the typical Chinese sort of uh, middle management company, AI companies, the surveillance, like the novel justification they give is like public safety. It's, you know, at least, you know, look to the West and it's all decadent and they're, you know, obsessed with video games and drugs and, you know. You know, we want to have a nice, harmonious society. And, you know, behind that is like the dark totalitarian food, right? That's ready to stomp on you, come out, get out of your lane. But the public face of it is it, it makes everything efficient, makes everything clean, makes everything organized. And you don't get this disruption. You don't get the chaos that you see in the West. That's the narrative of the propaganda pitch, which is compelling for, for some people, especially societies, you know, where you're looking like to a, a respected model, like the, the third, like the, not, I would say the third world, the, the rising world, right? The developing and emerging markets are trying to look to which model they fall. And that's a big competition that's taking place right now is do we want to, you know, are we going to, and, and they're worried, right? Like they're, they don't want to have to pick sides in this, in this split. They don't want to pick, you know, they don't have to be forced to choose. Am I going to be in the U.S. block? Am I going to be in the Chinese block? You know, they see like risks on both sides. And so they can find like a, a third neutral option, you know, and in the monetary domain, I think this is uh, where the Bitcoin tie-in comes in. It's like giving them a way to hedge their bets. You know, in a, in, a, in a way that doesn't force them to commit one side or the other and allows them to maybe re retain some degree of autonomy. They don't have to hitch their wagon entirely to, you know, the monetary digital infrastructure of a particular block, you know, effectively sacrifices some degree of autonomy and, and, and sovereignty. So that's going to be a major dynamic, I think. And that's where things like CBDCs come in. And that's, I think, where, you know, the, the major forces are going to start to play out in the next five, 10 years. I want to... Can we come domestically for a second, come back to our borders and, you know, build that wall, worry about ourselves on the tail end of this election, on the tail end of, you know, I tail end is the wrong word, but on the beginnings of this FTX SBF debacle, we spent a lot of time talking about how much money SBF has thrown at regulators this year. At the same time, we've also seen a growing conversation here in this country around CBDCs. What are your expectations going into next year of how will regulators be handling the broader crypto market in particular? How will they be looking at things within our borders first? Yeah. So divided government for one usually means like legislative sclerosis, right? You're not going to expect much big, I think, packages to pass. If they do, you know, I'd be surprised, but that, that just sort of means there probably is going to be much big legislation push. That's like my, my default is up. I know there is, you know, one particular bill that's, you know, been, been in the works for a while that is like an outside chance that comes up for a vote and it could come up in the lame duck. I don't follow that. Like, like I'm not doing like, like the whip count, like exactly. And people in, in the DC kind of ecosystem kind of can handicap that better than me. But I'd seem like, yeah, I was like, it's an outside chance. That's something like that could be passed. I think in general, and you could probably see more executive actions in the intervening time that could be problematic for certain parts of the industry. You know, there's been executive orders, obviously the big digital assets executive order that precipitated a whole bunch of these reports coming out from the, from the executive branch. Then I think across the board, if you had to like generalize like the, the five was like blatantly negative towards the whole industry with like pockets of like surprisingly neutral to positive like paragraphs, right? And so it's like, it depends on like, you know, what your bias is. Like you're looking for any grades of hope. You're like, oh, wow. They actually recognize the value of like 
flare like flare gas mining in the in the EPA and OSTP report on 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 digital assets energy consumption. And that's like you know from being, but at the same time they also cite you know basically debris and digiconomists like fifty times. So in the net, right, it was more in the, on the negative side than on the positive side. But there were surprising you know I think wins in some of the policy space. Big legislative action I don't see taking place now. There is an interesting, I was talking to some folks, you know, it's like, tactically speaking, right? like Bitcoin politically, you know, doesn't have a tribe, right? There's no like implicit like alignment between the Republicans and Democrats on Bitcoin. I think it's just sort of practically speaking, the current political mood has made kind of Republicans generally more favorable to Bitcoin than Democrats. Like I think that has sort of been the temporary axis of alignment. So that, you know, net net right i think you could see slightly more positive things coming out of, of a republican house but i don't think they'd be passed right it would just be kind of shifting maybe the tone of some community hearings or certain amendments that you know get, get softened a bit on the margin but i'd say for like crypto more generally right like it's not good that you have these effectively shadow banks just like you know taking each other out in public <laughs> and precipitating overall you know, just disorder i think like the market cap has fallen to a certain point where like major regulators don't see it as like a major financial risk in terms of spillovers. So they see it, I think it fell out of like the top 10 of like their list of like financial stability risks. It's just big enough yet or not anymore. And so to a certain point, they don't care from like a macro stability point, but they do care. It's like a whole bunch of like, you know, MTX retail investors are like hosed again. And it seems to be like a pattern, right? Of like Celsius and, you know, all these and Luna Terra has like all these things and blowing up and guess what? Like the billionaires and the rich, you know, VCs coming up just fine. And then everyone has, you know, is in bankruptcy court for the next four years. Like not a good look, right? And I think just as, as an industry, it just seems like, like amateur hour, right? Like you just, you know, and there, and there are things you could do. There's things you could, you could do proof of assets. You could do proof of reserves. There are things you could do to try to mitigate, you know, market contagion and, and the sort of FUD-driven panic shadow banking runs, which is what they are, basically, right? DX is a shadow bank, right? It issues effectively a liability that's a fictitious entry, just like a shadow bank issues like a fictitious liability that's only as good as you trust you know, the issuer. And when you have your own token as your main collateral, you're asking for trouble, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's like, this is just like, this isn't new, right? This is what we've seen shadow banks pull up for decades, right? For doing the same thing in TradFi. And the crypto land thinks they're just like, oh, we can reinvent all this, can have the magical money tree, and it works just fine with printing money on the outside. And then it's like, oh, it all falls apart in like an afternoon. Guess what? Like, because you didn't actually invent anything new, you just play the same sort of game with a different vocabulary. And yeah, like that obviously doesn't mean that like regulators are going to like look any better, (laughs) look at you any kindly, right? You don't do yourself any favors. And SBF himself has like held himself up as like, you know, like the representative of crypto to DC. Yeah, I didn't vote for him. <laughs> we were just talking about this. Yeah, yeah, and it's like I don't know the guy personally. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but like personal I don't know. But I do. I, I just look at this as like a market. You know, is like you know, DeFi. Just you know, like if you got maybe you could like squint and you could read someone's white paper and be like, yeah, that seems to be like an interesting use case there. And then you open your eyes and you look at actually what's happening. You're like, most of it seems like Ponzi, and most of it seems like you know basically pump and dump and, 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 you know, kind of front running schemes. And it's like, okay, well, that doesn't seem like a very healthy, innovative, you know, net productive use of capital. So yeah, in general, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for, 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 for those losses. But I do think that, you know, it, again, Bitcoin doesn't really care. Bitcoin can do itself and just, you know, 
taken up by the overall market in Philly. But yeah, I think in, in DC, you know, I don't know. It's a whole, it's a whole political game, right? Like, we, we got to see how 2024 plays out and uh, larger macro conditions. I think there will be things like stable coins. There seems to be a rough consensus on like a framework there, roughly. There is, I think, a big debate over how stable coins to be codified. Things are going to be that they need to be in some form or fashion. And the big fight is over, you know, how much do they get, how much do they get sort of absorbed by the, by the Wall Street Borg? Right? Does like Circle just become, you know, a subsidiary of JP Morgan? <laughs> like that's like one version. Are they, her, 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 is there a larger remit for narrow banks or special purpose depositor institutions to issue stable coins? Again, it's kind of like a niche policy debate, but that's one I think where because it's more narrowly focused, because it's sort of separate from the larger questions of DeFi and securities regulation, probably easier to get traction on that. And then, yeah, I mean, then it's the rest of the of the space, which to be honest, like, I care about it as much as I care about lots of policy issues, but I don't have like a personal dog in the fight of like, I don't know. No, I mean, I don't mean to cut you off, Matt, but candidly, this, co this conversation, all it's done to me is made me realize like, oh, this FTX Binance stuff is truly like a, a little grain of sand in the broader beach that is the chaos that's about to, oh, do we, he looks frozen. But to finish the ADM on the say is it, it essentially feels like we're watching a lot of things happen on a more global stage that will have a greater impact on our day-to-day -day lives that while this FTX Binance debacle is impactful today, how China, Taiwan, how these things play out in the future, how the US dollar and US's sort of foreign policy is received throughout the rest of the world, that's what's taking up your time. And that's what sort of has you most concerned. Is that a right way to- I mean, I see all this as like a cleansing fire, right? I, I see this as like, you know, bad business models and, in, and, and unstable, you know, cryptonomics need to break before they get too big, right? And that was with you with Luminatera. And it's like, if you have a bad business model, it's not sustainable, should be destroyed. Like, because the longer it lasts, the bigger it gets, the more the harm comes. So like, I actually get worried if there's too much, you know, too much quietude in the crypto world because it should have these blowups. Like that's its function because it doesn't have a lender of last resort. Just all shadow banks and all crypto euro dollars and driven by like pure, for the most part, of like 20 something dudes, right? So it should have periodic explosions of greed and, and collapse if it's functioning as that sort of type of market. Um, mm -hmm. Not blowing up, it means someone's hiding something. It means that there's probably a beach ball under the water some. So I just expect this is like the basic pattern that's going to happen, you know, until the market matures. Mm -hmm. You just can't have business models that are just based off of like, don't look down, right? Like, definitely. And if you, if you, you know, sell yourself as like the future of money, well, you should, you know, you know, walk or walk. So yeah, I just think Bitcoin's the most interesting asset for lots of reasons, but the only one that's like on a, on any meaningful time scale on any geopolitical time scale, any geopolitical scale is relevant. So mm -hmm. everything else is interesting from like a crypto space because I think it has implications for market structure and capital sources and regulatory, you know, oxed and could have spillovers to the views of the well, sort of naive sort of observer about Bitcoin. But I'm just trying to like separate out, like people I talk to in that security space is like Bitcoin is the thing, like everything else you should be aware of and understand that these are different things, put them in different buckets, 
assess their implications separately and make policy given that distinction. And does it mean that like, like larger crypto DeFi shouldn't exist? Like, sure, I believe things should exist so that people are free to make their decisions freely. I just think from like a policymaking and a sort of a, you know, consumer, consumer understanding, like it's important to draw a bright line <laughs> between these things. And so I had to see like the FTM CZ battle is like a interesting, yeah, fun story, but it doesn't change my view about Bitcoin at all, right? Like it's sort of irrelevant to that. Absolutely. So absolutely. Am I pulling a P? Am I muted? No. Okay, cool. We have about five more minutes. I want to remind everyone in the audience who is watching, we're going to hop on over to Twitter spaces in just a moment to discuss all of the stuff going on with FTX, with Binance, with none other than Dylan LeClaire. If you missed the beginning of that show, I would not recommend rewinding right now while we still have Matt Pies giving us so much alpha. Like, I almost feel like, dare I say, FTX uh, could just be a little bit more noise. And what we're really discussing here is, is the real signal. Like, we talk a lot about just the importance of Taiwan. I want to really emphasize this in Bitcoin terms, and I'm going to make it really simple. All of your fucking microchips. For everything you fucking use, from your cell phone down to all the Bitcoin miners that you started up to the, your brand new car that you have an eye on, it all comes from Taiwan. Like that is, in case you didn't get that note somewhere along the last two years when every single media organization talked about this, you need to understand this is not just a posturing for the sake of two old guys' ego. No, this is genuinely so you can buy the new iPhone 14. Was that? To class? No, I mean, this is the, you know, we build our consumer society on electronics and digital information and digital services, right? And, you know, that world built up in a world of like unprecedented geopolitical stability, right? Anchor the global hegemonic dominance of the United States. And, you know, it doesn't mean that like the world's going to just shift overnight, but it means that like it's a different environment you should expect in the next five or 10 years. And it's just, it's hard for people to grok that because, all most of our people, most of our lives were sort of growing up in kind of the halcyon days of, you know, the unipolar moment. And then, you know, we made these, you know, typical imperial hubristic mistakes, the rap and with the great financial crisis that sort of focused on internal politics and geopolitics kind of went to the back burner or became like a domain of like Sunday news shows, you know, are we going to do an Iraq surge or are we going to do a reset which, with, with, with Russia or whatever? And now it's like, it's going to become omnipresent because it filters into every aspect of your of your likes, right? Where do you get your stuff? <laughs> is that is that going to come the next time? I think China, I think COVID sort of what was up to this. And, you know, I think we felt that it was just going to be like a, you know, a temporary disruption and then everything was going to just settle back to normal. It's not the case. So, yeah, and that's why, you know, Taiwan matters. That's why these things matter because they're highly kind of dependent, right? And they're and we live in a very highly nonlinear, like nonlinear coupled dynamic system where you're like, butterfly pops its wings and you get a hurricane. Right. It's why you have to pay attention. I, I focus on like all the little things because those little things can turn into very big things very quickly. As we see with, you know, FTX is a good example of this, right? Oh, there's some weirdness going on with CZ. And why did he just post those, the, that, that thread? And then, oh, all of a sudden, you know, whatever, the token falls by 90% in a day, right? Like these systems we build like look stable and then they break. Well, like Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is one of those systems that like, like is by definition decentralized so it can absorb lots of shocks like the china mining ban was a great example where it took a massive hit exogenous shock boom but then you know the, the hash rate is that all doesn't mean the dollar price is going to be stable, right by any means it's going to likely be highly 
highly, highly volatile. But these are very different models for how you think about building systems. And that's what attracts me a lot about Bitcoin is that they model of the system that is assumes nothing's going to work out and assumes that, you know, things are going to break and you just need to build redu- like resilience and redundancy decentralization to those systems. So you're not vulnerable to single point of failure. You're not vulnerable to an opaque balance sheet or a single person making this. And then that has cascading implications to everyone who, you know, is, is anywhere nearby. So yeah, that's, that's sort of my, my broader thesis to kind of connect these things. Why well, it's so important to think of, to look at FTX and be like, this is, you know, we should, draw, we should draw lessons learned on this. And yeah, like you'll see it reflected in asset prices. But if you're not a day trader, if you're not like trying to time the tops and bottoms, like, really doesn't matter to you, right? Like what, what, what are you, what's going to happen to you tomorrow as a result of this, right? right. Absolutely. Whereas, Nothing draws. I think there's a starker contrast between the, the, in terms of the difference between like Bitcoin and then everything else that is part of the supposed, you know, cryptocurrency market than events like this in my mind. These types of exogenous shocks are just further confirmation for me anyway of the, the true value of Bitcoin. Matt, I want to give you an opportunity to give any final remarks and tell everyone how to stay up to date with all of your big brained ideas and hopefully P will stop harassing you in your DMs. Actually, he hasn't DM me. I've been feeling a little bit left out. Oh shit. I've been holding myself been, back. Have I, wait, have I been DMing Pines more than you have? Oh, for sure. I would, I basically. Some love notes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Q, it's a little weird. You showed me some of those messages. I felt uncomfortable on both your behalves, but I'm um, holding myself it's, back. This is not signal. This is on a delete. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Gonna have I'm sick, bro. Yeah. No, I mean, hit me up at Matthew underscore Pines. I've been supporting a BPI. So, you know, check the website up of their BTC policy.org. So, David Zell, Greg McCarthy, doing some great stuff over there. If you want to donate, go to the website. I'm sure they'd love to have some more funding to support themselves. I'll be at Pacific Bitcoin this week. I think I'll be on a panel doing some talking about something. And then, yeah, uh, yeah, if you have, if you happen to be a, in a C suite of a large multinational and you have, Concerns about a geopolitical or cybersecurity risk? Hit me up. And uh, yeah, uh, that's my day job. So yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome, man. I want to remind everyone as well that if you do not already have a ticket for Bitcoin 2023, you can use code BMLive to save 10%. You can also use code BMLive for everything else in the Bitcoin Magazine store, including an edition of the print magazine. We will see you tomorrow. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. Bitcoin is for everyone. Lefties, righties, and rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It featured articles by President Naya Bukele, Jeff Deist, Beauty On, Natalie Smolensky, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy at your local Barnes & Noble's bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at store.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.